You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is our final episode of the month of September. No, it's not. Never mind. Nope, we got one more. Never mind. Disqualify. <laughs> Forget it. Never mind. I didn't say it. Nope. That was a lie. I just timestamp every intro to every podcast. Well, the second week of June. That's how I kick off shows. It's tremendous. What I love about this is that this is a mistake that we could take out of the show, but no, we're going to leave nope. it in. Nope, we're absolutely leaving it in. Yeah. I'm leaving it, it in. It feels more natural con- this way. I'm more confused on days, you know, this year, um, but th- this week especially, I feel like. Um, yeah, no, we're, we're leaving it in. Yeah. It feels natural when there is just babbling and incoherence coming from me. I feel like that's everybody's most comfortable mode of this podcast is like, Oh, he's not making any sense. I guess we're into the episode now. <laughs> we're bringing it to you raw. Like always <laughs> what we do. Um, so hey, welcome into the, uh, as Benjamin Hill would say, the penultimate September edition of the show before the show podcast. I'm Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra alongside, uh, at least in the, the virtual zoom realm. Not not physically. Hi, Sam. Hi, Todd. That makes me think about this, that I I was watching NBA coverage this week because, you know, my Boston Celtics are in the playoffs. Your Denver Nuggets are in the playoffs. They are. Um, and they've been doing hologram interviews. I don't know if you've seen these, but Chauncey Billups, his hologram interviewed Bam Adebayo. Okay. Uh, which was fascinating. And it's just a sign of these times. Like, if you're not in the NBA bubble, you can't interview a guy face to face, but at least yeah. for TV, it looked interesting where they were almost Skyping in a future way where they were both on screen and in seats, um, but obviously apart. Uh, and it just makes me think how weird this show would be if we did that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have a visual element to this show, but we, we should for that. I'm sure in our podcasting budget, we probably have the same amount of money as the NBA does to do hologram interviews on, on TNT <laughs> or wherever. We I mean, probably do that. if we had that sweet, sweet TNT money, <laughs> um, we would be doing a lot of things right now. Ernie Johnson would just be between us at all times. Um, which I would be very into. I love, I love Ernie. I love those guys. The NBA and TNT crew is, they're fantastic. Um, Chauncey Billups, by the way, brother of University of Denver head basketball coach Rodney Billups. And uh, I'm the, the radio guy for that team. So like half the time I'm doing a, a DU game, I'll look over and like five seats away from me is Chauncey just hanging out. Like, oh, well, this is this is the closest I've sat to somebody this cool ever. Have you ever been tempted to just ask him, like, what did yeah, you, you think about on? that sequence? Do you want to come on? Just be my color analyst for for the rest of this game. And by that I mean I'll let you talk because you're smart and good at this, and I am barely adequate at describing things that I'm watching. And have won multiple NBA titles and you know Finals MVP, right. Denver, Denver prep legend. Yeah, we'll we'll give that a shot. Um, but, uh, yeah, no holograms for us on this week's episode of the show before the show, but we do thank you for, uh, for tuning in. We got a lot coming up for you this week. Uh, a lot of news items to get to, uh, we'll hear from Benjamin Hill. We'll hear from Jordan Wolf coming up here in a little while as well. And, uh, we start this week with, um, some unfortunate news, but we're going to couch it in that. I don't think it's as bad as you may think. Uh, news came down this week from Major League Baseball that the 2020 Arizona Fall League season will not be played. Um, we, of course, got uh, immediate replies on social media that were that were very down on this decision. There is one big qualifier to pass along with this. The AFL will not be played in 2020, due in large part to the fact that teams will be holding widely expanded instructional league uh, play for 2020, including in Arizona, teams will be playing against each other uh, in instructs, which is not a super common thing, or at least hasn't been for the last decade plus. Um, But that is one element of this. Now, obviously, instructs fans aren't allowed. It's not going to be that type of circumstance. But this isn't just the same cases. We had a lot of people, oh, this is a a money thing. They're trying to cut costs, blah, blah, blah. No. Um, Players who would be taking part in the AFL are right now likely one of two places, either at the alternate training site for their major league team or headed to instructs uh, in Arizona or in Florida. We have fewer details, at least from what I've heard, about what the plan is for the the Gulf Coast League uh, or the Gulf Coast Centered um, franchises, the Grapefruit League franchises. Uh, but 
that is a large element to this. Uh, it's a bummer to not have the AFL. It's one of my favorite things in the baseball world. But there is still going to be baseball being played uh, and prospects. Minor leaguers are going to get some very valuable time and innings in. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we talked about with the AFL is being a potential for 2020 um, because there was so much lost development time was trying to get as many prospects in the AFL as possible. And maybe that was going to mean uh, every you know, major league organization was going to get its own AFL team. Um, and then at that point, maybe they were going to split them. Maybe there was going to be an Arizona fall league and a Florida fall league. We're kind of getting that without the name, without the, the recognition of it. it there, there's, when we look at the AFL, because we hope it's going to come back in 2021, um, knock on wood. Uh, but when we look at the history of it, it's not like going to all the Arizona league instructs stuff is going to transfer over to the AFL. We're not going to get, you know, some fun salt river rafters teams that uh, will be good to look back on. We're not going to get like a Michael Jordan moment. Uh, you know, when he played in the AFL alongside uh, like Nomar Garcia Parra and Derek Jeter was in the league that year. Um, we're not going to have that setting, but these guys are going to still get a chance to get at bats, to get innings. Uh, it's kind of like what's happened at the uh, alternate training site, but for the first time, and we've talked to a number of prospects about this, they get to see other players. Um, it's, it's kind of going to be glorified scrimmages, but it'll just be good to see something else if they've been at the alternate training site. Some of these guys haven't been. Uh, that's what these instructs are going to be, is, is a chance to get uh, together with other groups instead of communicating via Zoom like a lot of these players have or email or whatever they're going to be get to work one-on-one -on -one with coaches again and um, under different circumstances sure but it, it's better than nothing and, and given you know what happened in the minor league season there's been a lot of nothing uh, for some of these guys it, it's been trying to stick to plans best they can uh, without being uh, without the chance to play actual minor league baseball so um, you know this is kind of the next best thing for what instructs are going to be right now uh, yeah, I am pretty sad about the AFL because it's just, it is so much fun to cover. Uh, Tyler, you've been there. Uh, you've yeah, seen how much it is, fun it is to be there. Uh, just as, It's like an, a prospect all-star game every day. Uh, and Instructs won't be that in, in a way as much as a lot of the top prospects will be involved in those games. Um, it is going to be a little bit watered down in ways that it wasn't in the AFL. Just look at the last couple AFL MVPs going back to 2013. It's Chris Bryant was the MVP in 2013, Greg Bird, 2014, Adam Engel, Glaber Torres, Ronald Acuna, Keston here, Royce Lewis. Everybody but Royce Lewis has made some impact on a major league team. The, the AFL is not for scrubs. Um, and that, that's what I'm going to miss. And, and speaking of Royce Lewis, I mean, he used the AFL last year to turn around his season. He had a lot of struggles last year, at Class A advance and double A. And the way he ended on a good note offensively uh, with Salt River gave the rest of us hope that the former number one overall pick uh, had a lot of value still and, and could still be a good hitter. He just needed to iron things out in his second full season and he got that chance. That still could happen. We could hear stories of people who previously struggled coming around in Instructs and you know, we'll be keeping a close eye on that. We're going to have some stories on the site about what's going on at Instructs, but uh, it's a little different, but uh, you know, as much as, as we're going to mourn the loss of the AFL, there's still going to be some development time for these prospects right when they really need it uh, after such a loss season. One guy who uh, will not be headed to Instructs, even though had you asked us two months ago, we probably would have thought, yeah, it's a viable route forward for him. Uh, instead, he is busy just turning heads, it seems like, night after night at the major league level. And that is baseball's number 93 overall prospect and the fourth-ranked prospect in the Chicago White Sox organization, left-handed pitcher Garrett Crochet, who was taken uh, in the first round of the 2020 Major League Draft, 11th overall out of the University of Tennessee. Uh, Garrett has come on, and it's kind of weird for us to be talking about him, really because I guess technically he has never been, and at this rate may never be uh, a minor leaguer. Uh, but Garrett has jumped in at the major league level and in four relief appearances, five strikeouts over four innings. He's only allowed one hit. He has not walked a batter. Uh, and he has been eye-popping. The velocity, I know the other night, 19 pitches, 18 of them were fastballs. 11 of those 18 crossed over 100 miles an hour. Um, he is right now already acting like the guy who would have been best case scenario for the White Sox to have gotten with that pick. This has been pretty incredible to watch. Yeah. And, and anybody listening at home who listened last week 
uh, to our show, know that I am kicking myself because you heard me t talk to Chris Getz and I asked about Garrett Crochet. What's his development like, you know, at the alternate training site? How are things going? Um, you know, what are you guys doing to prepare him for, for his first offseason? And Chris Getz says at the very end, uh, you know, there's a chance we could see him this year. And I thought he was just throwing that out there, whatever. That was hours before Crochet got called up. Uh, which I was very much kicking myself about. And uh, we could have broken news on a podcast, which doesn't really ha happen that often. I don't know if there are discussions after we hung up with him about bringing Crochet up. But if, if you go back and listen to that conversation, one other thing that stood out to me was Chris Getz said, this is a pitcher who, when he's coming in, you don't want to leave the room. You don't want to go to the bathroom. You don't want to turn it off. You don't want to see what else is on TV. You want to sit your butt in the seat and watch Garrett Crochet pitch. And that seemed like hyperbole. And then the entire baseball community saw what happens when he does pitch. Tyler mentioned the velocity there. He's averaging right now on his fastball, 99.9 .9 miles per hour. Uh, he's repeatedly, when I've seen him, touched 102. Uh, yes, these are in shorter stints. He's, he's not acting like a starter. The White Sox drafted him as a starter. That's what they want to use out of him. He's only thrown the slider so far. He threw one pitch that I that looked like a changeup to me, but according to StatCast, he's only thrown sliders so far. That, but that's all he needs to do. Uh, you know, he comes out of a high slot at six foot six. Uh, he's got a little bit of a leg kick that helps develop that velocity. I know a lot of people have talked about him maybe being like Chris Sale. I, I thought about that. Chris Sale came up in his draft year. At least he got a little bit of time in the minors. Crochet didn't get that option for obvious reasons, but. Um, the, the White Sox use Sale out of their bullpen. They use him out of the bullpen the next year, and then they developed him as a starter in the major leagues. But Sale was pretty skinny. Crochet's not skinny. He's six foot six, 218 pounds. And if you heard Chris Getz last week, he said also, I don't know how this guy dropped to 11. Uh, I don't know how we got him. The reason for that being is that I think he only threw one outing this spring at, at the University of Tennessee. Yeah, I think you're right. uh, he had shoulder soreness. Um, whenever you hear about that and you only get one look at him, that's going to scare teams off. I get that. But the stuff is elite right now. It is incredibly good. Uh, and th this is just in short stints. I've had people ask me on Twitter, is he up for good now? Do we ever see him in the minor leagues? I say yes. I think they want him to be a starter. Um, this could very easily become like an Araldis Chapman. Araldis Chapman was a starter in the minor leagues, and then everybody just decided, listen, if you can uncork 102, we're just going to keep him in, in a relief role. I think it's too early to say that for Garrett Crochet. He's still only 21. Um, but when we were talking about the draft back in June and thinking about, hey, there might not be a minor league season, do we see any draft picks co come up? I thought Crochet could be it. There's not a lot of tax on, on that arm. Uh, because of the injuries he had in the spring. And if the pieces come together, they could use him. And look at the White Sox using him at a time when they already clinched a playoff spot. Um, they didn't need to bring him up, but now they can add him into the pen. They're using him in difficult situations. He faced the heart of the Cleveland lineup the other night. Didn't have a problem with that. Uh, I fully expect him to be on the playoff roster at this point. And that's insane uh, for a draft pick. We, we see it very ra rarely. Uh, I think Brandon Finnegan came up in his draft year and pitched for the Kansas city Royals in the, yeah. in the playoffs. But that's the last one I can remember in, in the world series. I, he was one of, I think there's only been maybe one or two other uh, players to pitch in the college world series and the major league world series in the same year. Exactly. Yeah. So crochet didn't even get that, but uh, the white Sox who have not really surprised. I, I won't say that, but they've performed very well uh, this season uh, compared to where they were in previous seasons. And to, to add somebody like crochet to that is, very good for them. And, you know, I, I applaud them for giving a guy a chance when he is ready, when he is throwing darts like this, um, use him, you make the most out of this year. It's going to be a weird year. It's going to be a weird playoffs. Uh, but if you have a high, a guy pumping triple digits, make the most out of him, put him in your bullpen and figure out everything else later. Uh, so Garrett Crochet, again, can't stress this enough. If he's pitching in a playoff game, you are watching and you think, Oh, this is a rookie he could get lit up there's a decent chance he won't and you will be wide eyed and surprised and delighted uh, to watch him pitch. If you're a neutral, if you're a White Sox fan, even if your your team is going up against him, he's, he's certainly going to be one to watch with that velocity. So very exciting stuff. Uh, don't, I don't anticipate another 2020 pick coming up. You know, we we're only days away from the end of the season, but to have one come up this quick uh, is certainly worth celebrating. 
couple of other news items that we wanted to get to uh, before the end of this opening segment. Um, some news released by Major League Baseball this week that uh, MLB has announced three uh, formerly independent leagues as now partner leagues going forward, the Atlantic League, the American Association, and the Frontier League. Uh, those have all been announced over the last couple of days. Um, this is not something that was uh, unexpected. There has been reporting as to what this partnership would look like between Major League Baseball and these leagues. Uh, um, essentially, there will be uh, a lot of sharing of resources between these leagues. The Atlantic League is probably the one that has been uh, the example of this up until this point. They've tested out pace of play initiatives and some different rules things and those types of elements over the last few years. And in return for that, they've been given access to MLB's um, stats uh, and research uh, infrastructure, essentially, um, and all those types of things. So the American Association and the Frontier League will now also be partner leagues along with the Atlantic League. Um, yes, we are very aware that the professional baseball agreement uh, technically expires in six days. We're recording this segment of the show uh, on September 24th, a Thursday. Um, there is a lot of indication that Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball are moving forward um, and forging their way toward an agreement, whether that comes before September 30th or after, not entirely sure. Um, we're not privy to a lot of the ins and outs of that, but um, as we've discussed on the show before, we're obviously very aware that it's going on and very aware that you're interested in it. Um, we, we don't have a, a ton to share, but we'll cover it as that news comes out. Um, so this is a, an interesting step and uh, one that brings previously kind of out in the in the wilderness baseball leagues into the big tent, if you will, uh, under some sort of a relationship with Major League Baseball. And so it'll be interesting to watch uh, as that develops over the coming seasons. Um, one other item of news uh, to get to, uh, Pittsburgh Pirates prospect uh, O'Neill Cruz was involved in a traffic collision in his native Dominican Republic on Monday. And again, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, that killed three people. He was the driver of a vehicle that hit a motorcycle um, in Bonnie in the DR. Uh, he was not injured in the crash. There were initially reports that he had died, uh, but then his agent came out and said he was fine. He had actually just talked to him. Uh, there is a report from ESPN in the Dominican Republic that alcohol may have been a factor in this. Uh, we do not have those facts nailed down, but uh, O'Neill Cruz, that is a, a really, really awful story. And obviously our, our hearts go out to the families of those who were killed in that crash. Uh, but O'Neill Cruz, who is back home in the Dominican Republic, uh, who he still is just 21 years old. The three who were killed in the accident were 19, 20, and 23. Um, this is just an, an awful story. Yeah, no, and, and just from a, a human level, um, to, you know, to hear three people died in a, in a car accident involving anybody is, is really sad. And, um, you know, from reports in the DR, we've also heard that uh, Ornelio Cruz's time in court has been delayed as, as his lawyers uh, put together a defense and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes of that. And as, as always, uh, you know, it's always innocent until proven guilty. We don't have all the facts of the case, but to, to have him involved in this crash is very sad. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be following developments out of it and, and see what comes of it in terms of punishment or, uh, you know, non-punishment or what, what have you. Um, but something to keep an eye on in, in the Pirates system. And so with that, we will wrap up this first episode, uh, first segment of this episode of the show before the show. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Time for our weekly conversation with Benjamin Hill. What's up, Ben? Hey, Tyler, Sam. 
that was so uh, quick and to the point. I was caught off guard. I, I thought go right in. Yeah, I thought you'd ramble a little bit, and as you were talking, I'd develop some little tangent. I'd then go on, and you know, <laughs> but way to way to shake it up. I, I'm all for it. Let's just get right to it. I'm good. And I very efficient. We're very efficient this week. Um, I don't know if that applies to any other segment of the show, but just in this moment right now, I'm going to claim that we're very efficient. Um, well, it's, uh, it is now into the second week of uh, honoring Hispanic and uh, Latinx uh, stories around minor league baseball and uh, kind of trying to tell some of the different elements of the game that owe so much uh, to those cultures and those locations. And uh, Ben's got a really cool story that's up on the site, Copa de la Diversión, which has been around now uh, in full for about three years. It started as kind of a piloted program in 2017, fully launched in 2018, 2019. Uh, uh, doubled its team count supposed to add 20 plus teams to Copa this year before the season uh, was halted. But Ben looked back at some of his favorite uh, ballpark experiences and moments from Copa over the first few seasons. This is cool. Cause you've kind of gotten to watch the, the evolution of it. Yeah. You know, this is Copa is something we've talked about, uh, you know, quite a, quite a number of times on, uh, on this podcast, particularly as it relates to promotions and uh, different team identities and the uniforms and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, a lot to dive into. I mean, as you said, Tyler, there was going to be 92 teams uh, taking part in 2020 uh, should, if 2020 season had happened, and, you know, that's 92 out of 160 teams. So you have a, you know, major buy-in on this program all over the country. Um, and uh, so there's just a lot to explore. So my article, you know, I would never, uh, you know, I can only really write about my own uh, experiences with uh, Copa, you know, as, as a traveling white guy at, at minor league ballparks. Uh, but I did cross paths with uh, these, these theme nights a lot during the years and uh, pretty much uniformly, so to speak, uh, and, and enjoyed them, not just the uniforms themselves, but, um, you know, just the identities, the stories behind the identities. So in this article, I just uh, talked about how my own travels have crossed paths with Copa Nights at the ballpark and, um, you know, how it is. Uh, I think the, the, the larger point I'm trying to make is if we're always making this, um, you know, point of you learn so much about America through minor league baseball, because there's 160 teams and each one represents a community. Then when you add something like Copa on top of it with 92 Hispanic themed alternate identities, and each one of those has a story behind it, that's just that much more to learn uh, about America, uh, about Hispanic history and heritage. And I certainly have uh, learned a lot more just through these, um, you know, these in ballpark experiences and just in writing and learning about uh, the 92 Copa identities across all of minor league baseball. And of the ones you've gotten to see up close, I mean, we, we all get to follow these coast to coast uh, and it's been really fun to see how Copa's expanded over the years, but ones you've gotten to see, I remember, you know, you and I went to the Brooklyn game when that was a Copa night and they got to play as the Jefes. Uh, but what other, other games that you've been there for and, and experienced up close and, and personal uh, stand out to you? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone in the story I write about, yeah, our night in Brooklyn and Coney Island with the Jefes, um, the, uh, I saw the debut of the Congrejos Fantasmas de Chesapeake, uh, the Bowie Bay Sox's um, uh, Copa identity in 2018. I think the one that I'd really, um, I don't think I even mentioned the story, but I saw the uh, El Paso Chihuahuas play as the Margaritas, which is a, you know, look that uniform up if you haven't seen it, just this um, head to toe pants and jerseys, uh, you know, fluorescent limish uh, green. Uh, but I think the one I highlight in terms of experiences that I've had, um, you know, our coworker, you know, your friends and mine, or your friend and mine, Josh Jackson, um, we went, we, we both happened to go to Fresno as part of a road trip we undertook last season, uh, Fresno Grizzlies, when they played as the Lowriders. And um, that was a lot of fun, uh, seeing the Grizzlies adopt the Lowriders identity, because they, they hooked up with, um, you know, Lowriders uh, clubs and organizations and uh, you know, got a lot of lowriders to come to the ballpark and were parked outside the, the stadium um, you know, on display as a show. Um, I wish we, we went in late July. I wish we had gone to the first lowriders uh, night that they'd ever done the previous month when they had over 120 lowrider cars and a show on Fulton Street, which is one of the, the streets uh, adjacent to the ballpark, Chuck Chansey Park. Um, you know, they had 120 lowriders. And so just tying this lowriders identity a you know celebrated celebration of Central Valley California car culture, um, you know to have actually 120 cars there, and uh, the uh, one of the uh, winning cars in uh, the Best of Show contest, the People's Choice Award, actually now in the next iteration of the Lowriders logo will be featured on the team's jersey. So that's a really cool thing as well. Uh, but one thing Josh and I saw when we were in Fresno to see the Lowriders is we saw uh, during the game. 
um, outside of the ballpark, but still in it, if that makes sense. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the external concourse of the ballpark, they had a car hopping contest in game where these jacked up low riders, and I don't understand the physics and science and mechanics and the gear and the knowledge you need to use, but they were having a car hopping contest during the game where these, and there's a little video I took in the article, uh, where these low rider cars were bouncing up and down. And when they were bouncing up, I mean, you had the hood of the car reaching to the sky, like, you know, 10, 12 feet, you know, where it was almost pointed exactly skyward. Uh, so this amazing bounce on these cars. And, um, you know, just to see the, the love and the knowledge that it takes to really get one of these up and running and the paint jobs and the interiors. And I could really see how a hobby like that could take over your life. Um, but I, I really liked Fresno, who typically go all in on the promotional front. Uh, I felt they went all in on the low riders, and that's an experience I really enjoyed and uh, hope to experience again. And let's shift gears. There's a, a great story that comes annually in minor league baseball in Des Moines, Iowa, at Principal Park, the home of the Iowa Cubs, the AAA uh, Chicago Cubs affiliate. And ordinarily, this is something that we talk about during the season as having happened. Obviously, this year being so different, um, it takes on not only a different feel not happening during the season, but with what it is and with the times that we're living in and all that, uh, the Iowa Cubs welcomed 69 new American citizens in their annual on-field naturalization ceremony. And this is a really cool thing that the, the I-Cubs do every year. Yeah, you know, this is something I've been doing ever since the season was canceled, and now we'd be in what is the off-season anyway. But, you know, trying to um, come up with really cool things that teams are still doing in the ballpark. And, uh, since 2009, the Iowa Cubs have done this, had on-field naturalization uh, citizen, citizenship ceremonies. And uh, since 2009, they've welcomed over 300 uh, new citizens in the Des Moines area, um, you know, in the ballpark. And, you know, it just sounds corny, but it's true, like a quintessentially uh, American event. You know, they would do this on the July 4th game, uh, you know, baseball, July 4th, fireworks, citizenship. Um, just to, to me, that's like patriotism at its finest is welcoming new citizens who've gone through the process and uh, are, you know, seeking to start a better life in the United States of America. And, you know, it kind of made me emotional even writing this article. I mean, of course, we're a minor league baseball podcast and don't have the time or bandwidth to get into the larger national discussions and politics. But I think everyone can agree that it's easy to feel a lot of anxiety about the direction our country is headed. And uh, just in this small way, you know, reading about just this one ceremony taking place in Des Moines, you know, welcoming 69 new citizens from 32 different countries, uh, and just thinking of how that's a microcosm still of America all around the country, uh, these ceremonies taking place in various forms, but people coming from literally all over the globe uh, to come to America because it's still a desirable place to live, and that's the sort of sentiment and um, that, that just makes me still feel inspired uh, about living in America to maybe get out of our day-to-day doom scrolling or anxiety and realize like you know what there's still a lot to celebrate here there's still people all over the world who want to live in america and i love that a team like the iowa cubs is going out of their way every year to have an event like this so this year obviously they couldn't do it on july 4th there wasn't a season but they had a socially distanced citizenship ceremony in the outfield and it's a cool visual you can check out the story uh, of course on milb.com to you know see some pictures and get some more information but i really love that they did that and uh, to me that's quintessentially american and very patriotic and, and Ben, just to go a little bit further with this, um, how does this get put together? I mean, is this something they do with like the local uh, immigration board? Is it, how do they find the people for this? I mean, how does this just all get put together? It's a great event and the fact that they do it every year is awesome. So I'm sure there's uh, a lot that goes into it and, it and it's fairly easy at this point, but especially now, how do they put this together and find enough people willing to, to do this and, and participate in this because as you mentioned in the story, there's 69 new citizens from this, from 32 different countries. This isn't like all one big family or something like that. It, it's a lot of people from all across the globe, all becoming Americans at the same time. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, just something that the immigration courts are dealing with, you know, all the time, obviously, is uh, uh, processing, you know, these applicants for American citizenship and going through the process. And finally, you know, it culminates in these naturalization ceremonies. Uh, where you take the oath of allegiance, you know, to America, and uh, get your uh, you know certificate that basically says you're now American citizen. Uh, the Iowa Cubs version came about because um, uh, Judge Pratt, uh, the Honorable Judge Pratt, um, he's done. He's friends with uh, the Iowa Cubs owner, uh, so they're friends. And uh, Judge Pratt has done these ceremonies through the immigration courts in the Des Moines area, 
And, uh, you know, he had the idea of like, why don't we do this at a game, you know, it's just kind of a great public service for the new citizens themselves, as well as just to spread awareness of, of and welcoming them in a, in a, in a, in a quintessentially unique fashion. Um, but one thing I do mention in the story, you know, this is just something, you know, like COVID has slowed so many things down. Um, you know, it's been tough for these ceremonies to happen because they usually they often just happen in courtrooms and there just hasn't been an ability to socially distance to process all these applicants, go through these ceremonies and do all that sort of thing. So even before they had this on-field ceremony um, just a couple weeks ago, the Iowa Cubs actually had drive-through citizenship ceremonies in their parking lot um, where literally um, the new citizens would drive through, uh, take the oath of allegiance in their car, and uh, then get the certificate uh, in a drive-through manner. And uh, they, they, there were almost 500 people uh, over the course of what is called Citizenship Week who got their citizenship that way, um, just through the Iowa Cubs, uh, their, their stadium parking lot, Principal Park. Um, so I don't know how it's, this is happening all over the country, but the numbers really are astounding. You think, you know, this is just you know, Des Moines, Iowa, and the surrounding area that we're talking about, and the number of new citizens, and the, and the sheer number of countries, uh, people who are going through this process. So uh, you think about that, again, as a microcosm of America, it's, it's interesting to think about amid all the stuff that we as Americans are obsessed with, that this many people on kind of parallel tracks are, are, are just working to get into this country uh, because of all the things that it provides. It is a, uh, a very cool story and our uh, most heartfelt congratulations and welcome to those new American citizens who have gotten to, uh, to get that citizenship uh, officially confirmed into the record at one of the most uh, American of places, and that is a, a ballpark. And Benjamin Hill stuff, you can find it at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. He's also on Twitter at Ben's Biz. And uh, great stuff as always, man. We'll catch up again next week. Thank you, Tyler. Thank, thank you, Sam. Goodbye. Straight to the point. Economical and fishing. We continue along talking uh, Hispanic Heritage Month and some of the stories that are up on the site with our minor league baseball writer spotlight this week. We bring on our good buddy, Jordan Wolf. Jordan, what's going on? How are you? We are hanging in. Um, we talked uh, a little while ago with Ben about some of the uh, best Copa moments that he's had over the last few years. You wrote a really cool story that is up on the site uh, right now about a guy who people may be aware of uh, from somewhere in their baseball brain, even if they don't currently follow the team that he is with uh, or something like that. But Edwin Rodriguez, who has been a, a managerial trailblazer, I mean, he's had a, sort of a baseball life of trailblazing, but especially on the managerial side, uh, most recently with AAA El Paso and the San Diego Padres organization. This is a guy who's done a lot throughout uh, his baseball life. Tell us a little bit about Edwin and his background. Yeah, so, I mean, I think Trailblazer, like you said, is the perfect way to describe him. I mean, he played briefly in the big leagues. Uh, he was a scout for years, and then he started off in the lower levels of the minors. The GCL, I think, is where he started, worked his way up throughout the years. And then in 2010, he finally became a big league manager, and he was actually the first Puerto Rican big league manager. And so he not only, you know, had that incredible career himself, but he also paved the way for other Puerto Ricans who, you know, step into that role. Um, but most notable, you can say, is Alex Cora, who ended up winning the World Series. So um, while he didn't really have that incredible of a career as a player, his career as a coach has actually been really fantastic. And he's, yeah, just a really, really interesting guy. And, uh, you know, t take us through just that route to to the majors and some of the stops he hit, because as you mentioned, there was the GCL, there was Class A, there was Double A Carolina when the Mudcats used to be a Double A team. Eventually got to Triple A, got the bump to the majors from there. Um, you know, but what is maybe some of his coaching philosophies, managing philosophies? You touch on this a little bit in the piece, but what is he trying to pass on as a manager? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I think what I got most from him is that he really values developing players and helping shape young players because, as he said uh, late in my piece here, when he was a player, he didn't really have great coaches. And so when he stepped into that role, he wanted to make sure that any players he had under his tutelage weren't in that same position. So he started, yeah, like you say, he started out as a scout, um, and then eventually he was hired uh, Tampa Bay, then the Devil Rays, hired him as their uh, Gulf Coast League hitting coach, I believe is where he started. And then he went uh, up a couple ranks. He ended up in 1999. It was his first managerial gig. He started with Class A short season Hudson Valley. And he had immediate success. They won the New York Penn League title that year with him in his first year as manager. So he then was bumped up to rookie advanced Princeton. 
Uh, and then in 2003, he actually stepped away from the game for personal reasons. His wife was going back to college and he had to take care of his kids. But in 2004, Dan Jennings, uh, who was working with the Marlins, approached him and hired him as the hitting coach for AA Carolina, which, as you mentioned, is now Pensacola. Um, and then after that, he went back to the Gulf Coast League, became their manager, then went to Greensboro, Class A, and then jumped to AAA uh, New Orleans in 2009. And he actually never had coached in the majors at any level when he was hired as the major league manager. He was simply promoted from AAA to the majors as if he was like a pitcher or something. And, you know, he spent a couple of years there, uh, ended up going back down to the minors where he's been since. And really, I think the biggest philosophy for him, like I said, is just kind of helping shape young players and, you know, helping give them that steady, you know, guiding force that he didn't have as a player, because I think, you know, like he said, his career could have gone differently if he had had that. So I think that's kind of been his life's mission almost is to help players, you know, whether it's in his work at, in Puerto Rico or just in the minors, you know, help them kind of, you know, get on the best path possible and give them what they need to, you know, really succeed. One of the things that's so cool about stories like this is, yeah, like you said, the the playing career maybe was something different, but some of these guys who get into coaching and managing, you can tell there's just a different skill set and there's a different mentality um, that plays into making someone a good coach or a good manager. What specifically about Edwin Rodriguez, did you get an impression talking to him about something in his personality or something in, you know, obviously his work ethic is, is pretty incredible. What, what did you take away thinking, Oh, that's why that guy's got it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it is kind of just that caring for other people and help and helping other people. Um, he mentioned, I think it was in the last quote I put in there that he's happy to see, you know, he's, he's coached be it either through the minors or in the world baseball classic or whatever. He's coached Carlos Correa and Francisco Lindor, but he also, he takes just as much pride in the guys who don't make it that far that he, whether it's through the high school Academy work that they go to college and they get a degree and they get a good job or, guys who play a few years in the minors and then can go coach somewhere or just are better people after they leave, you know, the minor leagues. And so I think that's what it takes because to be a great player, you know, you can just have incredible talent. You can be a great player, but to be a good coach, I think you have to really kind of have, you know, you have to care about people and you have to, you know, have that desire to help people. And I think he certainly exhibited that over, you know, his however many years he's been a coach now. And uh, we can't let you go here without, at least getting the chance to tell this story uh, of how he found out he was going to be the the manager of the Marlins. Uh, it might be my favorite part of this piece. It involves a good story about former Marlins owner Jeffrey Loria. I'll let you all fill in the blank at home about that. Um, but uh, yeah, take it away, Jordan. Just tell this story as he told it to you about how he found out that he wasn't, that A, he was getting called up, and then B, that he was going to be no longer the interim manager, but the full-fledged manager of the right. Marlins. Right. So, yeah, they um, the, the Marlins, uh, then, then the Florida Marlins, that weren't in Miami yet, fired Freddie Gonzalez, and so they went to Rodriguez. They called him up to be the interim manager. And it was actually, it, it was almost kind of destiny or fate, whatever you want to call it. They were scheduled shortly after that to play in Puerto Rico, in San Juan. And it wasn't until they were on the flight to San Juan that Jeffrey Loria learned that he was the first Puerto Rican manager, you know, and if they, if they got rid of the interim title, he would have been the first full-time Puerto Rican manager in the big leagues. And so he, Loria learned that and was like, okay, all right, all right. And then after a couple of days, when they were in Puerto Rico, uh, Rodriguez was in his office and Loria walked in and told him that he was going to become the full-time manager. And I don't think I included this, but it was just minutes before they were supposed to play. And so the whole team was just so excited for him. And on top of that, too, they were playing in Hiram Bitorn Stadium, which is named after Hiram Bitorn, who's the first Puerto Rican to play in the big leagues, which I think was just incredible. And like I say, that's just you can't really chalk that up to anything more than destiny, honestly. And, you know, it really just adds on to an incredible career that he's had and just kind of, you know, it's, it's just honestly kind of incredible that it worked out that way. And, you know, it just adds on to such a great story. This is such a cool piece, and it is uh, up on the site right now with a lot more in it than just what we've talked about here. But um, great stuff, as always, from Jordan, who you can find on Twitter at ByJordanWolf. And uh, awesome job of this story, man. And thanks, uh, thanks a bunch for giving us some time to tell us about it. Yeah, of course, guys. Thanks for having me on.
Well, for the last couple of months, we have been uh, taking in submissions at MILB.com to figure out who among you all is minor league baseball's biggest fan. And we were uh, inundated with some super cool stories, and we heard from people all across the country and around the world. And uh, and it was really neat to hear, um, you know, some of what people love and miss and, uh, and cherish most about minor league baseball. And uh, we narrowed it down and selected finalists and selected our winner, who we are so pumped is joining us on this week's episode of the Minor League Baseball Podcast. And her name is Jody Compton, who joins us from just outside of Tampa, Florida. Jody, what's going on? How are you? I'm good. How are you today? We're so good. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on with us and taking some time. Uh, it's you know we're getting close to the end of September, and unfortunately, we've been spending six months talking about all the things we miss about minor league baseball. But one of the things that's been neatest, I know, over the last month, Sam and I have gotten a chance to write some stories about fans and talk to fans and all that, and it is kind of cool getting a chance to talk about all of those things and reminisce and uh, and learn about what made people fall in love with minor league baseball. So I don't want to take the story out of your hands. So give us the rundown of what you sent to us uh, to tell us why you were minor league baseball's biggest fan. Um, me and my husband both love to travel. And so we started visiting minor league parks to go visit uh, throughout the country. Like it was a, a, a reason to go to that place because we just like to visit places. So minor league baseball was a place to get our son involved in that traveling and give him something to do. And that so we've awesome. traveled. <laughs> so we've traveled like out to not to California, but to Utah. Which, uh, you know, as we uh, have heard from so many different people, one of the things that is neatest about minor league baseball is all these different locales provide such different experiences. You grew up, uh, or at least got your your start as a minor league fan um, with Pawtucket Red Sox games, which is a, a team that we've talked about a lot this year. They're playing host, of course, to the to the Red Sox alternate training site. Um, what are some of your earliest memories? You know, going to catch games at McCoy Stadium and all that. What made you personally really kind of dig minor league baseball when you first started to get in? I loved going with my dad like going to baseball games with my dad is like what I cherish about my childhood like he loved baseball he loved all sports but he especially loved baseball and I remember going with him and going on the berm is what I remember a lot too just like being out there and you mentioned your son before and having these road trips so how much of that did you see in your son in terms of like passing down this something you did with your dad at the McCoy stadium berm and now taking your son all over the country, you know, how much of what you're doing now with your kid is mirroring what you did with your dad? Uh, a lot of it is mirroring it except for the, the traveling part. Cause we right. just didn't have the, the finances to do it. Um, gotcha. So, so it's a lot of that. It's a lot of bonding time with our, our son and enjoying life. And uh, specifically when you say like you, what you guys love about traveling and, and seeing minor league parks is, is an excuse to see a place. And when you go to some of these new places, how do you look at how a minor league team fits and is representative of that city? So when you go, you know, as far as Utah and you see some of these pioneer league clubs or, or Pacific coast league clubs, um, what are you looking at for how the minor league stadium, the minor league experience embodies a city or a town? But we definitely, like, I look at all the ad, ads on the um, stands and stuff, and we try to definitely go to some of those local places with a lot of restaurants and stuff to see what the local flair is like. That's a really great answer, too, because I know, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you'd see Bull Durham or you'd see a random highlight from a minor league ballpark. And the thing that always stood out to me, yeah, were the ads on the outfield walls, because it's not, you know, here's an ad for a, a massive car manufacturer or a big corporation that has its headquarters in this big city. It's like, oh, there's Al's Toy Barn. You know, like that really is That's a very cool thing to point out. Yeah. Yeah, and it would definitely bring us to places where we probably would never went anyway because we wouldn't know it's down this little alleyway. When you guys started to travel, what was the um, the first trip that really stands out to you? I know you you told us a story about uh, a really cool experience that you had with your son uh, in Tennessee at a Smokies game. What were some of your other early travel experiences? And tell us about that Smokies game. 
Um, we went to the Smokies game and we got um, seats in the in the first or second row down by the bullpen. And because uh, the ticket the ticket person that we were talking to was like, "Oh yeah, sit over there. The catchers will be great and uh, throw you some balls." So because our son loved our son loved baseball um, from he was little like we had to we had to tape one of the um, World Series games so he could watch it over and over and over again. And uh, so he just loved baseball. He was obsessed. And um, a ball came over that way, and one of the catchers threw him a ball, and he was so excited. He catched that ball, and that was just that was just it. He loved it. He was like, yeah, we can go again. And he was two or three then. Like, he was young. And what have you guys done with that ball since uh, you mentioned it might've gotten signed. Do you remember who signed it? And um, you know, how did that start off a tradition for you guys? Just that fan player interaction. He, yep. At the end of the game, the catcher came over. His name was Corey Finer. Um, and I believe he was on the Mudcats then. Um and he came over and he came over and he signed it and we have the ball and it's sitting in a case on my son's bookshelf. Mm. And uh, how much did you guys follow his career afterwards? I mean, like that is one thing to just have a baseball fan in the family now because of that. And that's awesome. Um, but I remember going to games and, and seeing guys hit two homer games and thinking this guy's the best whenever now to have a signed ball. Did you guys follow up with his career or did you guys become like Smokies fans for life? How did that work out? <laughs> We did, we did follow him for a little bit and then he's out of baseball now. Uh, but we, we weren't like uh, going to see him. We would just follow him online, online Fair enough. and stuff. And it, there's my son ha- had a Twitter and at one of the leagues in, now I don't know where we were, but at the, one of the leagues, he was talking to the pitchers and they exchanged Twitters. <laughs> That's, that, awesome. that's a very 2020 or whenever that was like <laughs> 2010s, 2020 uh, way of doing things. Yeah. And he, he like, and he tweeted at him. He was like, it was great to meet you. Good luck in your career. All this stuff. I can't even remember who that was now though. Well, I mean, given your guys' experience of, of going to so many different parks, you, you said you've been to over 50 of them. Uh, you know, we talked to our colleague, Benjamin Hill about this all the time. He's been coast to coast, North, South, you know, games in Vancouver all, all that and people lo- love to ask him what's his favorite stadium I'll I'll ask you that but I'll ask, also ask you what are your favorite parts of stadiums like what it makes a really good minor league stadium to you um the um, my favorite stadium is the Durham Bulls and I'm like yeah. that sounds so cheesy because of the movie and it's all this but it is it's just it's just a feeling that you get when you walk in like you're first, yeah. you walk in and you just get this the fresh scent of the grass and just everything is where it's supposed to be. Like, uh, we, I, I like a berm. I like a berm is an important thing. Um, I like when you can walk around the entire field. Yeah. Um, so you can just go see it from every angle. And especially if they have like on the walkway, there's like places to hold your food or your drink. So you can put it down and watch for a little while and not have to hold it. And when there's good places to get foul balls and such stuff. That is true. The the 360-degree concourses are such a cool thing. Uh, and so many of the, I mean, virtually all the new parks have it. But it is weird when you go to a ballpark that doesn't have it and you find yourself like in some random spot near the right field corner. And you're like, oh, I got to turn around and go back the other way now. Um, from a, a yeah. ballpark food perspective, what is your go-to? Are you a hot dog person? Are you a burger person? Are you a, a vegetarian? What is your ballpark food uh, of choice? I am a hot dog and peanuts and a beer. Fantastic. Classic stuff. <laughs> but definitely, that's, that's what you have to eat. What about your, then, your husband and your son? They are both hot dog, peanuts, and the son doesn't drink the beer. But he appreciates, <laughs> he appreciates a good snow cone where he can put all the syrup on that he wants. That's pretty good. And an ice cream sundae with the helmet. 
Absolutely. If they don't have the helmet, it's no good. And speaking of helmets, you know, people collect all sorts of things. You mentioned it in your submission. You guys collect baseballs. You buy one everywhere. So, and you put it in your media room. So, what does your media room look like? Like, how many knickknacks from, again, <laughs> over like four dozen parks do you guys have in one room in your house? Uh, we have a lot of knickknacks. We have, um, so we have a TV and then there's bookcases on both sides of the TV. And then we have a board on top of it and that's filled with baseballs, like three or four high. And then we have three other shelves that are three or four high of baseballs that we got from foul balls. We got one home run ball from the threshers, which is very exciting. But that's the only home run ball we've ever gotten. <laughs> and, and then we have some that are signed. And then uh, I'm a big a Tampa Bay Lightning fan. So the other side of the room is filled with lightning stuff. Oh, man. And this is a how, what is your stress level like this week then if you're a big Lightning fan? Uh, uh, very high. <laughs> <laughs> very, very high. They better win. They better win. Well, we're talking to you here about 15 minutes before puck drop in, in the Stanley Cup final, which I'm sure is talk about stress level. So we'll, we'll <laughs> kind of wrap things up a little bit here. But in terms of what the minor league baseball experience do, has done for your family, going back to your dad, passing this along to your son, um, you know, what kind of influence does it have for you guys? And, and uh, you know, what does a year like this year where unfortunately we didn't get to have minor league baseball you know, what does that do for you guys? And what are you guys looking forward to about 2021? Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, everything is safe and, and minor league baseball is back. Oh, the, like the no game is no, no good, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but the, the Paw Sox in their last season is so sad because we were going to go up there and go see them and, and that. So that is really disappointing that that won't happen. And then they'll be in Massachusetts, but that's not the same. Yeah, it, no, my I'm, husband is from Rhode Island. So, fair enough. What do you, are you guys? You mentioned before the berm about McCoy, but what other lasting memories will you have of that stadium? Because as historic as it is, um, you know, there, there's so many memories of, of that place, new, old, what have you. Uh, what will you remember it most for? Uh, besides the berm, running up and down on the circle, the spiral ramps to get up and down the yeah um to the different levels and then the weirdness of it like that it that there there were those seats underneath that looked right out on the on the field right right and the people putting in balls into buckets or whatever they had like fishing it down to get autographs uh, yes yes exactly all right we'll we'll, we'll end on this one um, you guys mentioned in, in your submission that once your son graduates high school, you're, you and your husband are hoping to one day see all the minor league teams in one summer, which is a heck of a project. How much planning do you guys have you already put into that? And how long do you envision just being on the road and trying to get this? Like, are you going to factor in double headers? How are you going to make this happen? Cause this is an awesome road trip idea. Absolutely. It needs to have double headers. You can't do it any other way. It came about one year, like five years ago, somebody on the ML, MILB website had, had um, specced it out. And we were like, oh, we want to do that. So then every year when the seasons are released, we're like, what can we do? How can we do it? And it's more of a, it's a mind thought right now because we just can't do it. But yeah, it would be double headers and just driving. And we have an RV, so we just can't. So we could like leave the camper somewhere and go see all those games in our car. And that's our ultimate goal is to go see them all. And I know it will be difficult, but hopefully we can make it happen. Difficult, but definitely worth it. Uh, if you can make that happen, that would be the trip of an absolute lifetime. And uh, Jody Compton, who is our uh, minor league baseball biggest fan from all of our submissions and uh, and all of our contacts and everything that we got uh, through the last couple of months with this. Jody, it's so good to talk to you and to share some uh, some stories and some memories and some fun from uh, minor league baseball that we hope to see back in 2021 in its full glory. And thank you so much for taking all the time with us, especially right before puck drop. Go have fun. Go enjoy this game tonight. Thank you.
final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. We want to thank uh, Benjamin Hill and Jordan Wolf, and also, of course, minor league baseball's biggest fan, Jody Compton. Big thanks to Jody for joining us. And uh, we were able to get the interview wrapped up before puck drop for game three, and then her Tampa Bay Lightning went on to grab a game three win and take a 2-1 lead uh, in the Stanley Cup final. So, uh, obviously, it was, it was due to the terrific interview. Yes, no, the, for sure. We should. Wasn't start. Stephen Samkos? It was. It was just the interview. Obviously, it wasn't the return of Stephen. I feel no. like we should have asked her about that, maybe <laughs> off mic. Like, how excited are you for Stephen Samkos? Um, but yeah, it, the it, I wish we had powers like that because I would use them on the Celtics or the Nuggets. Same, same. Uh, I would. I would very much enjoy that. Um, yeah, it's. It has not worked for my teams. <laughs> and we're the ones and we're the ones doing this in these interviews. That's annoying. Uh, but very happy to have gotten a chance to talk with Jody and, uh, and a big thanks to her, of course, for coming on the show. And uh, before we get out of here, Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of revisit the Arizona fall league. Yes, it is sad that we, we don't get an AFL this year, but as we said in the open, um, it'll just be something different this year that, that we'll be covering and um, a little bit more behind closed doors. But anyways, just to remember something to remember the AFL by, uh, I went to last year's AFL leaderboard, uh, and these were the top five hitters in terms of hits. The, these guys had the uh, top five most hits in the AFL last year. It was Royce Lewis, Jared Oliva, Joe Adele, Alec Bohm, and Andres Jimenez. Four of those five yeah. are now in the majors. How cool is that? Uh, it just it tells you about the AFL's influence and – uh, how close some of these guys are and how some of them use it as a launching pad. Uh, Jared Oliva had a pretty decent year, decent year last year in the Pirate system, but had an 886 OPS. He just debuted this week. He just got his first hit actually today on Thursday in the majors. The Pirates are going to give him a little bit of a look as they are, you know, go into a rebuild and, and what's been an other, otherwise tough year. Um, Joe Adele, we've talked about his struggles, but Alec Bohm has been – an NL Rookie of the Year candidate there for the Phillies. Andres Jimenez has been a solid option up the middle for the Mets. He's especially been good defensively. And we talked about Royce Lewis before, how he really struggled last year in the twin system, but reversed it. And he was the AFL MVP after he hit 353 uh, with 30 hits in 22 games last year for Salt River. So um, just something to remember the Arizona Fall League by and um, what that league really means for some of these guys, how they use it. Uh, it, we talk about it all the time when we do talk about the AFL as it being prospect graduate school. Um, the last thing they get kind of get to do before they take that jump to the majors and all of Adele, Bohm and Jimenez prove it right here. If you can perform in the AFL, you are going to get your major league chance shortly around the corner. So that'll do it. Uh, some breaking news at the end of this uh, podcast, which by the time you get this podcast will be wildly outdated. But um, Keegan Matheson, who is uh, the Blue Jays reporter for MLB.com, just tweeted about 20 minutes ago, Nate Pearson is back. Uh, quote, he is expected to pitch out of the bullpen and could throw multiple innings. So as the Jays uh, steamroll their way toward the postseason, they get another really exciting young talent. If there's a team out there starved for young talent, it's those Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> Well, speaking of another guy who, who stood on the AFL, I mean, remember yeah, when he, yeah. he hit, I think it was 104? Or, oh, I thought it, it was 104. It might have been. It was true. It was well. It was a lot. Yes. It was a lot. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's, it's got to be a very fun year to be a Jays or Rays or White Sox or Padres fan. You know, I mean, where it's just like uh, anything can happen. We got young dudes who are really good. It's, I got to say, it's kind of comforting. In in the in our jobs, I put it that way. We talk about these systems in terms of here's what's coming. We're telling you this is coming. Yeah. These teams will be good, I swear. And then they this year to to see those guys become that good. It took some expanded playoffs. Maybe we wouldn't be talking about the Blue Jays in this context in a normal year because they would be well out of it. But still, you know, having Bo Bichette be one of the best shortstops in the game now, having Vlad Guerrero continue to put up really good exit velocities, not quite be who we expected, but still be very good. The Rays, they keep plugging guys in. It's insane. Uh, the Padres bringing up Luis Patino at times. Fernando Tatis Jr. taking the jump to being MVP uh, when we were talking about him just two years ago as one of the top prospects in the game. It's very affirming. I, I really got to say this year has been 
great if we're not going to have minor league baseball to see the young talent that we feel like we were just talking about yesterday um, become bona fide superstars has been really awesome. They're not going to get there this year, but uh, your next Mariners. Your next Mariners and the Marlins have even been. And the Marlins. And the Marlins will be there uh, as it looks this year. Although I know that lead is a little bit tenuous right now. They're only a game up on uh, the Phillies in that last wildcard spot. But, uh, yeah, there's a couple other teams that are headed that direction. And uh, we're not saying that we're right all the time. We're just pretty much right all the time. I mean, this is just a trailer for next week's episode, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We've done this before and we will do this again. We know how this game works. Oh, man. Uh, All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.